Sometimes it's the small things, surprisingly small things. Have you ever been awakened by a fly? I know that's not a pleasant picture to think about, but I remember when I was, particularly when I was a kid, uh, for some reason, every now and then, wasn't often, often enough that I remember it, there'd be a fly buzzing around and it would not leave me alone in spite of the fact that I didn't want to pay attention to it and I didn't want to wake up to deal with it. But that fly was persistent. It was a small thing, but it sure didn't set my day off on the right foot, so to speak. Or perhaps you've been outside. A lot of us have been and there's a pesky mosquito and it buzzes around and it's just enough to bother you, but you can't quite find it and take care of business. But that mosquito persists and a single mosquito can really, really make a big difference. And in Florida, where I live, we have something called no seums. Now, those are real tiny bugs that bite and you don't want to have them bite you. And, and I've never seen a no see them. Well, that's pretty obvious, I guess, because they really are tiny. I don't even know for sure if I've been bothered by one because I haven't seen them. But people talk about them and how irritating and annoying they are. They're just a small thing. And where I live in Florida, we have small lizards. You'll see them outside sometimes and occasionally not every week, not even every month, but occasionally you'll find one inside. And I hope to tell you, even the tiniest little lizard, and some of them are really small, that gets in a house or in a room full of people, that can upset the whole room. Now, these lizards aren't dangerous. They don't have teeth. And they're not too difficult to catch, although they're pretty fast. But it's a small thing that makes a big difference. And that's what the way that fly was. A small thing made a big difference. A mosquito is a small thing, makes a big difference. A no see small thing, but you can be irritated by that for several days. A small lizard makes a big difference. Well, we want to talk about a small little shift in the way the Bible expresses something that gets our attention and makes a big difference. I'm Pastor Rick Stevens, and I'm the pastor at Diplomat Wesleyan Church in Cape Coral, Florida, and you're listening to Faith Is, and this is the place that we try to make our faith stronger because we are convinced that faith is absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God, and we want to trust God, and that's what we're here for, and I'm so glad you joined us, and I believe what we're going to talk about today will be helpful and help you grow and strengthen your faith and your confidence in God. And I want to shout out to my church and thank them for their help in making this possible. I couldn't do this without their support, and I'm so glad for that. And I know they want this to be helpful for you because we want you to find out today that small little difference that kind of pops out at us from the Bible that really leads to a big difference in our lives. And I appreciate you joining us and listening, whether you're listening to us on America Out Loud or by podcast, we're really glad to have you here. And speaking of America Out Loud, I was the guest host on another program that's on the same network this week. And perhaps if you'd like to introduce yourself to something a little different that, that I work on, 
you could go and listen to the prism of America's education. It's normally hosted by my friend, Karen Schoen. She was away, had to do some traveling to help improve education in Florida. And so she asked me if I would sit in. So I was happy to do that. So as part of that program, really the main part of it, it wasn't what I contributed, but, but I had an opportunity to talk to Alex Newman for the hour of that program. And Alex is an expert on education and other things. And he was so very insightful. And I want to encourage you to check out Karen's show, Schoen's show. That's a mouthful. And if you can stand it listening to a guest, a substitute host, but mostly listen to Alex Newman, you'll be amazed at the things he brings out and helps us with relative to the education of our children. So head on over to America Out Loud and listen to the show there. Or if you listen by podcast, you can find it wherever you find your podcast. But that's called the Prism of America's Education, the Prism of America's Education. I think you'll enjoy that program. And, and especially, I think you'll enjoy hearing from Alex Newman this week. Well, let's get into the things we're here for. We want to take a look today, primarily from Hebrews chapter four. And that's the section, and if you're familiar with this description in the scriptures, that's the place in the Bible that it talks about how the Word of God is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword. So what it's trying to remind us is that when God communicates to us, when God speaks, so to speak, He has something to say, and it makes a difference. And we can't hide from that, and we shouldn't think we can. We can't hide from God, and when we think about the impact of God's Word and of what God says, then we should realize that we really can't hide from God. And of course, the good news is we don't want to, and we'll get there as we, as we go through it. But thinking about this impact of God's Word, I want us to start with looking and kind of thinking out loud about this passage in Hebrews by looking at the, the context of Hebrews chapter 4. Now, almost everybody who tries to understand what the Bible says recognizes how important the context is. And so that's why I want to start there and help us think about that as we, as we then get to the latter part of chapter 4 in the book of Hebrews. But what's going on in the context here is a, is a discussion, a, an admonition, you might say, from the writer of Hebrews that there is rest to be attained and there is wrath to be avoided. So it's rest versus wrath. And it's talking about the rest of God and how God gives us rest, or how if we don't faithfully follow him, how we then are subject to the wrath of God. And so what we're trying to understand here is what is it that God is saying to us so that he can give to us what he wants to give to us, which is his rest. God is eager to give people his rest. He doesn't, he doesn't at all desire to go the other direction with wrath. He entirely desires to give people his rest. And so when we say yes to God, then we enjoy the rest of God. When we say no to God, then we subject ourselves to the wrath of God. And it's important for us to understand that, that we subject ourselves. It's not because God is looking for ways to get us. God does not look down from heaven and say, well, I wonder what that guy's going to do today that I can get him for. Not at all. 
he looks down from heaven and extends to us the opportunity to say yes. He desires for us to say yes, so that then we can enter into his rest. So what's going on here in Hebrews chapter 4 is really a warning against disobedience, a very strong warning, I think you'll see, and a very eyes open, no hidden agenda on God's part, simply a straight ahead warning that he wants us to follow what he says. So Hebrews is a little bit of a dense book, and I noticed in some of the English translations that I was looking at to prepare for the time together that we have here today, that some of the, the language in the translations was just a little harder to follow. So I thought, well, let's, let's use the message. The message is a fine English translation. It's not usable for everything. I use it sometimes, like today. I would encourage you, if you like it, just use it. Just read it. Because remember, like I've always said, the best English translation is the one you'll read. And many of them are fine translations, but I want you to find one that speaks to you that you can understand so that you can enter into, as we're saying today, and as Hebrew says, you can enter into God's rest. So I chose the message, and I'm going to read some verses here so that we can kind of understand the context of what's, what's going on leading up to verse 12 and the primary focus, the primary point that's made a little later than verse 12 in this fourth chapter of Hebrews. So let's read it and let's think out loud along the way with it so that we can kind of understand the context that leads us to the end of the chapter. So beginning with chapter one from the message, Hebrews four, chapter one, for as long then as that promise of resting in him pulls us on to God's goal for us, we need to be careful that we're not disqualified. Now, now notice it says it right up front, just what I said a minute ago, God's goal for us, the promise of resting in him. He wants to pull us toward that. No barriers, just pull us toward that. We, back to verse one again, we need to be careful that we're not disqualified. We received the same promises as those people in the wilderness, but the promises didn't do them a bit of good because they didn't receive the promises with faith. If we believe, though, we'll experience that state of resting, but not if we don't have faith. Remember that God said, exasperated, I vowed, they'll never get where they're going, never be able to sit down and rest. And let's stop right there. This, these were God's words as given to us in the message. Exasperated, I vowed. This is God speaking. Exasperated. Think of that. Exasperated, I vowed. They'll never get where they're going, never be able to sit down and rest. See, God had tried so hard to get them to go in the right way. And he's, it's as though God is at wit's end. And I know it's a little daunting to think of God that way. And, and to be sure, God is far beyond human experience, even the idea of being exasperated. But nonetheless, that's the way he expresses us, it to us, that, that God says, exasperated, I vowed, they'll never get where they're going, never be able to sit down and rest. See, God wanted them to have the rest, but they just didn't because they didn't receive the promises with faith. They didn't have 
as we've said here, they didn't have absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. And so God is just, what do I do now, so to speak? Well, let's continue on in Hebrews chapter four. God made that vow, even though he'd finished his part before the foundation of the world. Somewhere it's written, God rested the seventh day, having completed his work. But in this other text, he says, they'll never be able to sit down and rest. So this promise has not yet been fulfilled. Those earlier ones never did get to the place of rest because they were disobedient. God keeps renewing the promise and setting the date as today, just as he did in David's Psalm centuries later than the original invitation. Today, please listen, don't turn a deaf ear. So there again, you see the whole idea of that that God wants his people, he wants all people to walk with him to find that rest. Notice how it says here, those earlier ones, in other words, people years before, never did get to the place of rest because they were disobedient. And that's an important understanding. It's important for us to understand that God expects us, calls us, helps us, encourages us, cheers for us, wants us to be obedient. And they didn't get to the place of rest because they were disobedient. So the the clear contrast that we're thinking about today is obedient to God or disobedient. Obedient, rest, disobedient, as we said, wrath. Let's continue in Hebrews chapter 4. And so this is still a live promise, the live promise of rest that God offers. This is still a live promise. It wasn't canceled at the time of Joshua. Otherwise, God wouldn't keep renewing the appointment for today. The promise of arrival and rest is still there for God's people, still there for you, still there for me. God still invites people to walk with him and find his rest. All right, so I interrupted the reading. So let's pick it up again. The promise of arrival and rest is still there for God's people. God himself is at rest. And at the end of the journey, we'll surely rest with God. Now, there's a picture. There's an aspiration. See, that's the, that's the point of God communicating with us, is to get us to the point, to the place, to the time when we'll rest with him. Continuing from the message, so let's keep at it and eventually arrive at the place of rest not drop out through some sort of disobedience. Notice it says, not drop out through some sort of disobedience. So God says he wants us to continue on, to not be discouraged, to not veer off the track in disobedience, but to follow him. And we need to take heart at that and and do that exactly. Now, in the next verse, and, and we'll get there in a minute, it begins to talk about how effective God's word is. And, and I want to point that out in a story that, well, maybe most of us are familiar with, but a lot of times the stories of the Bible are very, very helpful for us, very instructive so that we can understand what God is up to. And now we're about to consider and about to talk some more about this very effectiveness of God's word, that it really gets to the heart of things. And it's expressed in different ways in different English translations, but essentially it's saying that you can count on God and his word to get right to the heart of things and, and leave no question about what God is, is th- thinking, talking about, wanting us to understand when it comes to obedience 
or disobedience. So there's a story, and, and this one really shakes up a lot of people, but I think it's really insightful. And, and if it shakes you up, then hear the word of the Lord, right? But let's understand that, that here is a, is a very good example of the way God just cuts through all the baloney, all the stuff, and gets right to the heart of things for us. And his word does that. So this is a story of Jesus from Mark's gospel. And Jesus is out and about like he often was. And this comes from Mark chapter 10, starting at verse 17. You may recognize it. Uh, if you're familiar with it, we often call it the story of the rich young ruler. And I'm again reading from the message. And it makes a lot of sense. I think you'll enjoy the way that the Eugene Peterson has put this together for us. It's, the message is really a great gift of God to the people of God, and, and we give thanks for all of those. So here we go, chapter 10 of Mark, verse 17. As he, and this is referring to Jesus, as I said, as he, Jesus, went out into the street, a man came running up, greeted him with great reverence, and asked, good teacher, what must I do to get eternal life? Jesus said, why are you calling me good? No one is good, only God. Well, let's just pause right there and remind ourselves, this is a really brilliant way the writer of Mark reminds us that Jesus is God. Fully God, fully man, we understand all of that, but it's really important that Jesus is, is clarifying in, in a rather unique way, no one is good, only God, but he didn't tell the man he said the wrong thing. He acknowledges but in a rather clever way to reinforce that, yes, he is good and he is God. So continuing with Jesus' statement to the man, why are you calling me good? No one is good, only God. You know the commandments, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't lie, don't cheat, honor your father and mother. Okay, so Jesus did answer the young man's question. The young man said, what must I do to get eternal life? He was concerned about eternal things. We should be too, by the way. Uh, those things last. It's a long time when you think about eternal things. And so he says, what must I do to get eternal life? It's also important that it, to notice that, that he asked what he should do. And sometimes we think we have no responsibility in following Jesus, no responsibility of faithfulness, but we really do because that's the heart of obedience versus disobedience, isn't it? that we have to do the right thing. And so Jesus reminds him that he's God, and then he spells out common, concrete things. Don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't lie, don't cheat, honor your father and mother. We would say that comes right out of the Ten Commandments, wouldn't we? And it's very clear. There is, there's no doubt about what Jesus is saying the man needs to do. No mystery, no uh, trickery, no well, kind of, sort of, what do you mean by this? No, he just puts it out there. And the, the, the man replies, teacher, I have from my youth kept them all. Well, that's a bold statement. I always, that always stops me when I read this story. That is a bold statement. I've kept them all. Well, good for him. I, I'm not sure all of the rest of us could be quite that, um, uh, quite that uh, good, you know, well, he just kind of, we have our moments. I hope we haven't done anything like murder or adultery, but, you know, I just think we need to face up to some of those kind of things. But he said, he kept them all. 
good for him. Again, nothing mysterious here. No trickery, no kind of sort of, no, well, maybe I did, maybe I didn't. No misunderstanding of Jesus' expectations. 100% straight up. And he says he's kept them all. Continuing from Mark 10 in the message. Jesus looked him hard in the eye and loved him. I know you think I'm stopping every time I read a sentence. Well, that's often the way it seems to me when we unpack some of these things. But forgive me, I don't mean to interrupt the story, but we want to make sure we understand what's going on here. Jesus looked at him, looked at him intently. Interesting the way this translation says, looked at him hard in the eye. Jesus saw him through and through. Jesus knew him through and through. Jesus knew what he might prefer to be hidden. Jesus knew. And Jesus' response to looking at this man and knowing all about him was, and loved him. Take a breath and think about that one. Jesus looks at you. He knows all about you. He knows your ups and downs, your ins and outs. He knows the things you're trying to hide from him. He knows the things you've not hidden from him. He knows your wishes, your dreams, your fears, your hopes, your dreads, everything. But when Jesus looks at you, just the way he looked at this man, he loves you. That has to be included in any understanding of obedience versus disobedience, particularly in the light of this story. Jesus loved him. And then Jesus said this, after he'd seen him, after he, as the scriptures say, after he saw the man so thoroughly and yet loved him fully, Jesus said, there's one thing left, Go sell whatever you own and give it to the poor. All your wealth will then be heavenly wealth, and come, follow me. Now, we read that and we go, oh, dear me, what a thing for Jesus to say to someone. Go, what did he say? Go sell whatever you own and give it to the poor. All your wealth will then be heavenly wealth come follow me. When Jesus saw this young man, he knew something about him. Apparently the, the man didn't know this himself, but Jesus saw him and he loved him and he wanted him to have what he requested, eternal life. And so Jesus laid it out. The word of God to this man was go sell your stuff, give it away, come follow me. Obviously, by the man's reaction, we'll get there in just a second, Jesus nailed it. But here's the other thing, and think about this as we go ahead and, and, and unpack the man's reaction. Jesus gave him the same type of invitation he gave his other disciples, come follow me. Here's a man who had the invitation to follow Jesus. We might say to be an insider with Jesus. He was invited to come and follow. That's a big deal. That's a, Jesus didn't say that to a lot of people. Well, he says it rhetorically, and he means it to all of us that we need to be his followers. But in that day and that time, he invited a few people into his inner circle, and 
looks to me like he's inviting this young man into his inner circle. Go sell all your stuff. Come follow me. Well, you would think, knowing what we know, that anybody would say, well, that's a better deal than I ever could have imagined. To walk with God himself, to be a part of what he's doing. But as soon as Jesus said that statement, continuing in the message, the man's face clouded over. This was the last thing he expected to hear, and he walked off with a heavy heart. He was holding on tight to a lot of things and not about to let go. That tells you a lot. See, Jesus cut right through it. He knew what his problem was. He knew what, can we be so bold to say? Of course we can be so bold to say. He knew what was keeping him away from eternal life. All this stuff he was hanging on to. The man turned away because he had a lot of stuff. Story continues. Looking at his disciples, Jesus said, do you have any idea how difficult it is for people who have it all to enter God's kingdom? The disciples couldn't believe what they were hearing, but Jesus kept on. You can't imagine how difficult. I'd say it's easier for a camel to go through a needle's eye than for the rich to get into God's kingdom. That set the disciples back on their heels. Then who has any chance at all, they asked. Well, that's a fairly good question, isn't it? Because in those days, they would have believed that somebody like this rich man was blessed by God. They typically thought of that as the sign of God's blessing. And now Jesus is saying that a consequence of that is difficulty getting into the kingdom of God. And, and so the disciples are, are, seems like thoroughly confused. Well, who can then? Uh, is there any chance for any of the rest of us? If there's no chance for him, what about us? You know, that's what they said. Then who has any chance at all? And Jesus continues. Jesus was blunt. No chance at all if you think you can pull it off by yourself. Every chance in the world if you let God do it. Well, now there's a very, very strong statement. How many people will say when they get to heaven, they're, they're just going to say to the, the mythical proverbial, however you think of it, St. Peter at the pearly gates, when he says, why should I let you in? They're going to say, well, I hope I did more good than bad. But that's not what the scripture says. That's not what Jesus says. He says, no chance at all if you think you can pull it off by yourself. Every chance in the world, if you let God do it. Continuing, Peter tried another angle. Well, we left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Mark my words, no one who sacrifices house, brothers, sisters, mother, father, children, land, whatever, because of me and the message will lose out. They'll get it all back, but multiplied many times in homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and land, but also in troubles. And then the bonus of eternal life. This is once again, the great reversal Many who are first will end up last, and the last first. See, Jesus cuts right through all the stuff, and he says it's worth it to follow him. He says, don't worry about what you've lost. Think about what's ahead. In light of Hebrews, we'd say, think about the rest of God that awaits us. Here, we would talk about eternal life because of the 
the man's question. And Jesus calls it, not only will you not lose what you think you're going to lose in this life, but you're going to have the bonus of eternal life. Well, that's, that's really good news, don't you think? That's very good news. So we've come a little distance here. We've talked about a number of things. We've, um, we've talked about the, the rest of God and that that's the context of Hebrews here. And so much of understanding the Bible has to do with context. And so it's the idea that God desires, wants to give his people rest. But the story in what we call the Old Testament was that so many times the people resisted God and didn't obey, and so he would not let them into his rest. And here we're learning from their experience that the rest of God is what we should aspire to achieve, and we do that by obeying God. When we disobey, we resist that rest, and we lose out on eternal life. See, this whole section, including what we're going to look at after the break in a moment, is, is really a warning against disobedience, and the good news is this. You will know if you are disobeying God. God does not set you up and come back later and say, aha, gotcha, you disobeyed. No, you will know. As surely as the young man in Mark knew, you will know. Now, some people say, well, well, I used to feel about something, but I don't feel about it now. I used to think I should do this, but I never did, and, and I think it must be okay with God because I don't feel that way now. Watch out. That is a trap. Maybe we should talk about that when we get back from the break, because we do not want to presume on God just because we feel a certain way. We want to make sure we understand God's message to us, so we act decisively to be His. That's the point of Hebrews, so we can enter rest. Well, you rest for a few minutes, and we'll be right back. Trouble getting to sleep and staying asleep can be infuriating. Your mind races, you toss and turn, and the harder you try, the harder it is to drift off. And today's digital age makes it even harder. You're not alone with this struggle. Poor sleep affects over 70% of Americans. Even the Centers for Disease Control labeled insufficient sleep a public health epidemic. To take back your sleep, Healthy Cell has created REM Sleep, the only sleep supplement made to support all four stages of human sleep with calming herbs, amino acids, and sleep hormone support delivered in a patent-pending, pill-free, ultra-absorption microgel formula that tastes great. Fall asleep, stay asleep, sleep deeply, and wake up refreshed with Healthy Cell's REM Sleep. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off your first order. That's HealthyCell.com, H-E-A-L-T-H-Y-C-E-L-L, and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off. You know, Healthy Cell is a terrific lineup of products. They have products that are pill-free, gel-packed vitamins. Uh, looking for better sleep, focus, and energy? Check out Healthy Cell, the leading innovator in nutritional supplements for cell health. Healthy Cell has a product that helps REM sleep, helps you fall asleep, stay asleep, sleep deeply, and wake up refreshed with Healthy Cell's REM sleep supplement. The only sleep supplement that's designed to support all stages of sleep. And boy, is it needed now during all the stress of the COVID-19 pandemic. So go to HealthyCell.com and use the code 
out loud, all capital letters, out loud, for a 20% off your first order of any product from Healthy Cell. I use them every day. I believe in them, and you should too. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. Today, America stands at the crossroads of history. Our actions will determine the fate of our nation. Well, that journey starts here and starts now. We invite you to join us in making the ultimate difference. Subscribe to our podcast and newsletters. Turn notifications on and stay in the know. You'll find all that back at AmericaOutloud.com. Liberty and justice for all. I hope you've had a little rest from our conversation and you're fired up, ready to go for the rest of it. And we ended by talking about the aspiration of God's rest and by my suggesting that occasionally some of us have heard God's voice and we have, well, for lack of a better word, and maybe not to be overly difficult, we've resisted and we never did follow through. We heard God say, you need to stop this. And we just thought, well, it's not so bad. I must be misunderstanding, da 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 whatever. And so we just never stopped. Or maybe we heard God say, you know, I really want you to do this. I have this mission for you in life, something for you to do. And we just kind of dithered and thought, no, surely God can't use me. Surely there's somebody better. I'm not able to do this, or I'm not a pastor, or I'm not. And we sound a lot like Moses at the burning bush trying to tell God, go choose someone else. And that's really what Moses said to God there. It's, it's just remarkable. Uh, God didn't go choose someone else. And Moses finally did lead the people out of Egypt. But what happens to us when we have heard from God and we've just kind of brushed past him, shall we say, and we didn't respond? Are we to presume that God has changed his mind? That he doesn't want us to do that? Or are we to reconsider that? Just because we don't feel the acute conviction of God, does that mean God has changed his mind, doesn't want us to do it? Well, I'm not you, and I'm not God, and I can't tell you what God is saying to you, but I can say this, and it's based upon what the scriptures say and help us understand that if God has something for you to do, he will make it clear, and if you have any doubt, you ask him, God, is this what you want me to do? Did I mess up when I didn't do it? Is it time for me to get with the program and get busy doing it? Or maybe it's something you've refused to stop because you just thought it was silly or unnecessary or whatever, and God thought it was important in your life. Then maybe he's going to say again, no, I meant it when I said it. I, I'm just waiting for you to do it. Uh, far better to, to hear him say that now than, at, shall we say, at the pearly gates? Of course, it's far better. So here we are discussing this idea of... Um, obedience versus disobedience. And, and in the part of Hebrews that I read earlier, there's a, a, another really interesting story referenced in the, in the uh, context of it, because it, it refers to it not, um, uh, what would you say, not uh, overtly, but uh, by quoting from the, from the scripture in Exodus. And it's, um, it's an incident when the people of God should have known better than they didn't. So I want to read that story for us, because well, we got more to talk about than we can, but this is, this is pretty important. 
So in Exodus 17, let me just read the story. Directed by God, the whole company of Israel moved on to by stages from the wilderness of sin. They set camp at Rephidim, and there wasn't a drop of water for the people to drink. The people took Moses to task, give us water to drink. But Moses said, why pester me? Why are you testing God? But the people were thirsty for water there. They complained to Moses. Why did you take us from Egypt and drag us out here with our children and animals to die of thirst? Moses cried out in prayer to God, what can I do with these people? Any minute now they'll kill me. God said to Moses, go on ahead of the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel. Take the staff you used to strike the Nile and go. I'm going to be present before you there on the rock at Horeb. You are to strike the rock. Water will gush out of it and the people will drink. Moses did what he said with the elders of Israel right there watching. He named the place Massah or testing place and Meribah quarreling because of the quarreling of the Israelites and because of their testing of God when they said, is God here with us or not? See, that's another one of those clear illustrations that is referenced in Hebrews by, by it's the quotation. And it's very clear. It's, it's, a, it's a, such a, a significant point that here God has led the people out of, out of Egypt, delivered them from slavery, and they come to a place where they need water. Well, I'm pretty sure God knew they needed water. I doubt if he was surprised by that. It's an arid area of the world. If you ever get to visit Israel, and I hope you do, you'll discover that, and you'll learn that they had to, they had to set up camp. They had to build their cities near a water supply. So this wasn't a surprise to God, but they complained about it. They complained about it. How come, God? Where? What are we going to do? Dive? Because we don't have water. And, and it doesn't say in this place, but I wonder if it would have been pleasing to God if they, instead of complaining about the water, had, had gathered together and, and all of them before God had said to God, we thank you for delivering us from e Egypt. You have helped us more than we know. You've led us this far, and we have every confidence that you are going to provi provide for our needs, and right now we need water. And you know, as well as we know, that if we don't have water, we will die. But we have you, we have you, Yahweh. We have you, the God who delivers. Will you remember your people now and provide us with water? We know you can, and we are trusting you to do just that. What might the outcome have been differently if they had expressed their confidence in God instead of their complaint to God? Well, I think you get the idea. And that's kind of what we're trying to think about here in terms of obedience versus disobedience. Where are we going to come down on this business of faithfulness to God and doing what God calls us to do? That's, that's a very, very pivotal understanding in all of this. All right, so let's, we're kind of going back and forth, and that's, that's, that's okay, isn't it? We're trying going back and forth between some passages in the Scripture, some stories that teach us what we want to know, and, and this passage in Hebrews. Now, in, in Hebrews, we're, we are at chapter four. And I said that some of this is a little dense because uh, just the way the English has translated it, and, and I've used different translations. I want to go back now 
and and partly because it's just a little more familiar to those of us who know the story and and look at hebrews chapter 4 verses 12 through 16 and i want to take the niv and and then have some thoughts that will kind of point us in the right direction as we finish up this idea of obedience versus disobedience so hebrews chapter 4 starting with verse 12 from the niv for the word of god is alive and active Sharper than any double-edged sword, it penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Well, again, we're reminded that the word of God is active, alive. And I guess that's not a surprise because we remember creation and God spoke all of existence into creation. And it's a marvelous thing that what God did. And it tells us here that the word of God gets right to the heart of things. It's another translation. The, the message talks about the word of God compared to a, a surgeon's scalpel who, who cuts right to where it needs to be cut so that things can be healed, made, made better. They use that kind of illusion here. It uses a little different one in this English translation. But the whole idea is that you're not going to hide from God. Can't hide from God. So many people sometimes try to hide, can't hide from God. Just, just give that up. We can't do it. And then it continues. Yes, we can't hide from God, but guess what? Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we pro profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Well, there's a very small adjustment here that I want to make sure we don't miss. I said at the beginning of the program that sometimes small things make a big difference. And, and this small difference highlights a huge difference. So verse 16 says, let us then approach God's throne of grace. Now, it's interesting that the New Testament here in Hebrews uses that expression, throne of grace. Other places in the Bible, it talks about God's throne of glory. And, it, and it's still God and it's still his throne, but it's described differently. Now, you remember the glory idea of God was well displayed at Sinai when he came down and the mountain shook and the thunder rolled and the smoke billowed. It was a magnificent and awesome display of God's glory. He came down and, and he was not approachable. Only Moses could go up. God said, stay back or you'll die. And so people stayed back. That was God's throne of glory. In the tabernacle, when God instructed them to build this traveling worship center, we might call it. It had a place in the, in the central part of it called the Holy of Holies, where God's visible presence among his people dwelled. They saw cloud go into that place. They knew God was with them there, but they were not allowed to go in there, only the high priest and only once a year. Same thing was true in the temple. When they built the temple, the permanent place to worship God in Jerusalem, they had a holy of holies, and only the high priest could go in there. Nobody else could. They would risk death. See, God had his glory on full display, and, and, and that's an important thing. Now, now, God's glory has not diminished, 
But when it, Hebrews uses the expression throne of grace, it's giving us an idea that there's a different way now to approach God, a different basis upon which we can come into God's presence. We don't have to be afraid of God. We don't have to be fearful that God is going to get us. We need to understand that he offers grace to us. And, and the grace of God is, is in Christ. And when we look at Jesus, we see a person, we see God who is accessible and who we can approach. Jesus is a friend to us, to everybody else. Scripture sometimes uses the expression, Jesus is a friend of sinners. I often talk about how God is our covenant partner or we are God's covenant partners. That means we are friends. Abraham, as God's covenant partner, was called the friend of God. And so we see this throne of glory idea, and now Hebrews reinforces this throne of grace. Now, what do we mean by grace? Well, there's a lot of ways people describe grace, and, and we won't get into all of that today, but I want to describe it a little bit in, in a way that I like to think of it. Well, the throne of grace is the place in Hebrews, and remember, we're studying a specific passage of the Scripture. We're not trying to understand every passage that talks about grace. We're trying to understand this one. So here, when it talks about the throne of grace, we, we approach the throne of grace where we can receive mercy. Mercy, that's interesting. Well, receive. If you're going to receive something, you have to accept it, right? So if you're going to receive mercy, you have to accept God's mercy. Uh, some people resist. Well, I'm so bad, God can't help me, or whatever they want to put up there with the excuse. You fill in your own thinking there. Don't let me speak for you. But let me speak for all people that we come to the throne of grace to receive mercy or accept God's mercy. Now, what do we mean by mercy? Well, that's the idea of compassion. We have in the context of this few verses, the sense that Jesus was tempted in every way like we were, so he understands the challenges of temptation, and so he has compassion toward us who wrestle with those very same things. And this idea of receiving mercy, accepting mercy here, carries with it the, the idea that this is mercy toward an offender. And so we who have offended God by our sin then we come to the throne of get grace to receive mercy, to accept compassion toward us as an offender. And God welcomes us to his throne of grace. Remember, God's intent is what? To get us in a position to enter into his rest. So we receive mercy. That's one of the things that it talks about when we approach God's throne of grace. And we find grace. Now, I heard it uses that same word, throne of grace and find grace. Well, we need to think about grace then, I guess, because it's going to be mentioned that much. Well, the idea of find is to discover, uh, discover that there is grace with God, and, and it's also related in that whole word and understanding to attain grace. Now, now, what do we mean by grace? Well, there's a few ways that we sometimes talk about it. I like what I heard in a song many years ago. My children listened to it, and that's how I happened to hear it. I never forgot it. When you get what you don't deserve, it's a real good thing. Well, that's grace. When you get what you don't deserve, it's a real good thing. When God offers us salvation, when God offers us eternal life, like the rich young ruler was looking for, when you get what you don't deserve and we don't 
deserve it. It's a real good thing. That's a description of grace. The, the, the song also had the flip side of that. It says, when you don't get what you deserve, it's a real good thing. When you don't get what you deserve, it's a real good thing. Well, I've never gotten away from that. I just, it just really helps me a lot because what do we deserve? Well, in the context of Hebrew, we des- describe it, we deserve wrath, not rest. And so when we get rest, because God has provided a way for us to find grace with him, then we're getting what we don't deserve and we're not getting what we do deserve. So that's what's going on here with grace. That's kind of the idea of grace. Now, I've also put together a definition that I find helpful. And every time I think about grace, I think about this definition. And every time I think about it, I think that there surely must be a better one. And I always wonder about the deficiency or the inadequacy, because how do you describe grace? I mean, really, how do you describe something as amazing as grace? Well, I've thought several years ago that we needed a working definition of grace, something that would help us understand in concrete terms, because often these more abstract concepts are just difficult to live out. And so I was trying to come up with that. So I came up with this idea. Grace is the gift of God that enables the people of God to fulfill the will of God. Let me run that by again. Grace is the gift of God that enables the people of God to fulfill the will of God. So what do I mean by that? Well, grace is a gift. We're all familiar with Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, where it reminds us that it's by grace that we're saved. So salvation is a gift of God. Everything that you have, everything that I have, my hope of eternal life is right there as a gift from God. And it's a gift of grace, for by grace you have been saved. It's a gift from God. It's grace. So grace enables salvation. Couldn't be saved without it because it's only because God reaches to us that we are saved. So grace is the gift of God that enables the people of God. And this idea of enables means this. It's a gift that enables me to be part of the people of God. And so now that I am one of them by grace, then this same grace enables me now a part of the church, the fellowship of God's people, now that same grace enables me, enables all of the people of God to fulfill the will of God. And what's the will of God? Well, the Bible tells us what the will of God is, and in the context of what we're looking at, the will of God is for us to enter his rest and to avoid his wrath. And so in order to enter his rest, God is calling us to be obedient and to walk with him. Now, some people think you just can't be obedient. I, I think that's baloney. If God says we need to be obedient, come on. Is he going to ask us to do something we can't do? No, we can't fool God, but God doesn't try to fool us either. That's really part of the good news, right? Can't fool God. So let's take a, just a little bit more time on this idea of grace before we leave it. I think the, the idea that when you get what you don't deserve, that's a, that's a, that speaks to me about grace. And when you don't get what you deserve, that speaks to me. When I think about grace as the gift of God that enables the people of God to fulfill the will of God, that helps me because now I know that by grace, I can do what God expects of me. 
I don't have to wonder. I don't have to wish. I don't have to worry. I just have to receive, discover, attain mercy and grace at the throne of grace. So what do I mean by grace? How do we kind of access grace? Because it's not something you go down to the store and buy. Oh, mercy. Don't even think about that. It's not something you can show up to church. And if you put enough in the offering, you get grace. Don't even think about that. That's just oh, un unthinkable. Well, often I will say to people that if you're concerned about your spiritual well-being and, and you're struggling with that, one of the things that you need to do consistently is put yourself in the stream of grace. Now, I'm not quite sure where I got this idea to call it the stream of grace. It occurred to me many years ago. Uh, I, I still think it, it helps because if we're going to encounter the grace of God, if we're going to come to the throne of grace, we have to put ourselves in the stream of grace where God can find us, where God can talk to us, where God can help us. Because if it's his word that teaches us what we should do and what we should not do, then we have to put ourselves in a place where we can hear from God. So when you think about putting yourself in the stream of grace, that's one of the reasons that I say pretty consistently, you need to show up to church every weekend. Maybe your church meets on Saturday, maybe meets on Sunday. I'm not so concerned about the day of the week. I'm concerned about whether you're there every week. Does that make sense? Too many people think it's kind of optional. Well, put yourself in the stream of grace. If you want to hear from God, if you want to attain grace, if you want to discover what grace is about, put yourself in that stream of grace and participate. Take part in the activities of that church, maybe a Bible study, participate in the worship, Pay attention when the pastor speaks. Another way to put yourself in the stream of grace is to read the Bible. Read the Bible stories. If you find the Bible difficult, find a translation you can understand or listen to it. There are plenty of recorded options. And put yourself in the stream of grace because then God can speak to you. And God wants you to clearly understand what he expects. We can't fool God. I see people try to do that from time to time. I see them hope that God will look the other way from time to time. But really, we know when God is talking to us, and we know when God expects us to do something, we shouldn't try to run away from that. I, 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 sometimes I just, how do you get through to people to help them understand that, that God sees everything? That's the point of Hebrews chapter 4, particularly starting at verse 12. You can't fool God. Well, Take that the next step. Why would we want to fool God? I mean, God is offering us his rest. That's what Hebrews chapter 4 is talking about leading up to this. God wants us to enter his rest. He was exasperated by the people who would not enter his rest. So why would we want to fool God? He offers us the opportunity by grace to come to his throne of grace, to receive mercy to understand his desire to reach toward us, the offender, to make us new and to help us discover grace and attain what God has for us, his rest. You see, we can't fool him, and he offers us the opportunity not to be fooled. And he doesn't attempt to trick us either. See, God is for us. That's very clear in the passage where it talks about how Jesus knows our weaknesses because he understands temptation. Jesus understands temptation. And we're not saying from this scripture that, that he was tempted by 
everything that you're tempted by. No, he's tempted in the same way that you're tempted. And so he understands the nature of temptation and how easy it is to give into it. But the Bible assures us he did not. He did not sin. You know, the, the, the big difference between Jesus and us, you know, people say, well, Jesus was God. Yes, he was. But Jesus was also a human. You know the big difference between Jesus as a human and us? The big difference between Jesus as a human and our human experience is that Jesus did not sin. And that's remarkable. That's, that's can we say that's huge? That's, that's just, that's just blow you away territory. Because here's Jesus who understands completely what it's like to be human, who can understand us, can see us in the same way he saw that rich young ruler and knows us and loves us. And he did not succumb to temptation, but he took care of sin on the cross so that we could then receive mercy, that we could find grace, and that we could walk in newness of life. And we, as Hebrews says, can enter into his rest and avoid his wrath. Well, I don't know about you, but a lot of days I could stand a rest. And so when I think about what God is offering us at one day, one day, it'll be all rest. And I hope you'll be there with the great company of God's people. I hope that you'll allow this small change in the scriptures to work a big change in you so that you see God as accessible and eager to know you. Because together, we want to have faith in God. We want to have absolute confidence in his trustworthiness. And we want to discover grace day by day so that he can restore our souls. May it be true for you and yours this week. I'll see you next week.